miss each one of you here tonight. Hope you've had a really good week, and we're just delighted to see you here in our Bible study. Turn to Proverbs chapter number 30. Proverbs chapter 30. We're inching our way through the book of Proverbs. We're nearing the end, but still got a ways to go. Proverbs chapter number 30. Last week, we covered only one verse, and it's sort of a pivotal verse. As I said last week, I'm not certain whether that verse was supposed to be the conclusion of the verses before or the introduction to the verses we're going to be looking at tonight because, you know, there's no clear statement that tells us, and we've got to try to figure that out, and, uh, and, and I'm still not sure. But the point is that that particular verse had to, had to do with the matter of unconcern toward others and injustice toward others. And whenever you see that, unconcern, injustice, when you see that, especially on a large scale, you can't help but wonder, what in the world happened? You know, we look back at our... Uh, at our nation, for example, think back a hundred years ago and think about, uh, you know, what was considered respectable or acceptable uh, behavior in that day. And then we look around and see what it is today and we realize that, uh, that uh, something drastic has happened in our nation. It doesn't just happen by accident. It's not just something that, you know, that's going to happen regardless. Well... I mentioned that because when we get to verse number, verse 11 through 14 that we're going to look at tonight, uh, I, I believe that these verses explains how that happens, how society gets to where they're unconcerned about each other and there are injustices and, and consequently whenever you've got that, you're going to have a society that is in turmoil. And so let's look at these uh, Let's look at these verses, beginning in verse number 11, and we're just going to take them one at a time. Uh, I, I also said last week, looking ahead, that beginning in verse 11 all the way through verse number 33, that section contains six groups of four things. Now, again, I don't know why God did it that way, but he did, and it's very clear that that was the intent. There are six different groups consisting of four things each, and he wants us to look at each one of those because all of them relate in some way to his plan for our life. Well, this is the first group that we're looking at here tonight, and uh, the writer is giving us here four sins that affect not only individuals but entire generations. And I think that's something we ought to always keep in mind because sometimes we get the idea, what I do is nobody's business but mine. I'm not hurting anybody but myself. When the fact of the matter is, and the Bible teaches very clearly, it talks about the sins of the parents being visited, you know, upon the children of the third and fourth generation. Other generations are affected by what we do or what we don't do. And so whenever we look at these four sins tonight, keep in mind they don't just affect you as an individual, they affect entire generations because sin uh, is like leaven. 
Paul alluded to that in his letter to the Corinthians. You know, it's like leaven, and a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. One of my favorite things that Mama used to make, and every time we'd go back to visit, she'd always make homemade bread. And, uh, and of course, you put leaven in it, and uh, it does its magic. Well, sin does its corruption in the same way. It just spreads throughout the whole lump. So... Uh, when we look at this, keep in mind, he says, there is a generation, verse 11. And he's going to repeat that. There is a generation. Now, you know, that could be descriptive of many different generations. But it's certainly true of the last generation before Christ comes. There's no doubt about that because, as Paul said, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. We know it's not going to get any better so we know that ultimately that this is where we're headed and that these are things that we can expect to be characteristic of the days that we live in. It'd be nice if it wasn't that way, but it is what it is, and that's the times we live in. Well, let's look at the first sin, which happens to be the sin of disrespect. Verse 11, There is a generation that curseth their father and doth not bless their mother. Now, this has to do with the violation of the fifth commandment, which, by the way, the fifth commandment is the first of the commandments that deal with our attitude toward other people. And so, you know, the first, first part of the commandments deals with us and God, but the others deal with us and others. And this here is where the list begins. This is on top of the list. And it's showing us that respect for parents is absolutely essential for social order. You know, if, if there's a breakdown here, if there is a failure here, then it's going to affect everything else we do. And in fact, this matter was so important that under the Old Testament law, it was punishable by death. Can you, can you imagine living under that law or having that law imposed on us today uh, in the day and age where we live in where there is such disrespect of parents that we see? We ought to thank God for grace. Whenever you, uh, you know, you've heard people say, well, one sin's just as bad as another, and so... Consequently, and what they're almost always trying to do is to justify their particular sin. Because it's easier for them to look at any of us, you know, and if they look at us long enough, they can point out some flaw in our life, some sin that we're guilty of. And so they say, well, you know, you did that, and so don't con condemn me for doing this. Well, you know, any sin, all sin, will condemn you in the sight of God. Because James says if we violate one law, it's like the links in a chain, you know, then you've broken all. And, and that one violation of God's righteous standard is all that it would take to, you know, to keep us from God. In that sense, all sin is equally destructive in that sense. But all sin is not the same, and I know that because God gave different punishments for different sins in the Old Testament. When it comes to being something punishable by death, you know that's about as bad as it can get. 
I mean, you know, what more can they do to you? And uh, that was a part of the Old Testament law. But we look around today and we see how common it is for there to be disrespect in families today. Well, we see it everywhere, uh, and we see it all of the time. Everywhere you go, you go grocery shopping or wherever, and you see some mother there with a kid, and just the disrespect. You see it in the schools. You see it everywhere. And all of that can be traced back to a failure in the home. And we go back to the Old Testament and think about, you know, God's plan for for initiating these laws and bringing these people to a moral standard. And it's very clear in the book of Deuteronomy that that responsibility was laid on the doorstep of the home, the family. It was their responsibility. You know, today we've, uh, it seems like at least most people, they think, well, you know, I send my kids to school to learn and, uh, and, of course, whenever you have a public school, you've got different standards, you know, than you might have in a Christian school. But let me tell you, whether it's a public school or a Christian school, as a parent, it is your responsibility to make sure that your children learn. That's not to say they can't, you know, that the school can't be helpful. But I'm saying if they don't get it there, you better make sure they get it because that's your responsibility. And the, and the sad thing is, if children don't learn to respect their parents, then they're going to grow up not respecting anybody. And that leads to all kinds of problems, you know. So uh, that's your job. And, and as your job, it means that you teach, that is, you instruct. And, you know, we live in a day where people say, well, you know, there's not any such things absolute uh, uh, as absolute right and wrong. It, it all depends, they would say. You know, you've got your truth, I've got my truth. Well, the fact of the matter is there is there is an absolute truth and it's the Word of God. And it's our job as parents to instruct our children. It's our job to guide them, which goes a little bit beyond just ordinary instruction, but to guide them it's our job to discipline them, and uh, boy, a whole lot of that lacking today. It's our job to love them, because if you just discipline them without love, you're going to do probably more damage than you do good. And so we have a great responsibility uh, toward our children, and on top of all of that, we have the great responsibility of setting a good example for them. Probably every parent at some time or another has become frustrated in dealing with their kid. And the kid, you know, wanted an explanation. Why do you want me to do that? Or why won't you let me do that? And what do we generally say? Because I told you so, you know. Well, uh, you know, that, that might be appropriate to an extent and in a certain way. But, uh, but we've got to get beyond that. We... we, we you know, to expect them to obey us just because we said so is one thing. To expect them to obey us because of respect that we have earned through setting a good example, that's another thing. And so we have a big responsibility, and I'm going to tell you, the only way that we can possibly raise our children successfully <clears throat> is with God's help. 
And we can't we can't do it on our own. I'm gonna tell you what, it will be it'll be a miracle those for those of you that have little children and what have you. It it'll be a miracle if your child doesn't end up out here on drugs or with a messed up life in some way or another. I'm just telling you the facts. I, you know, I could sit here and say, oh, well, you just make sure you just bring them to church. Everything's going to turn out all right. They'll never stray. They'll never do anything wrong. Uh, but I'm telling you, it is inherent within those children and in every child has a propensity to sin. That's why we don't have to teach them to do anything wrong. They're going to do that by nature. So we've got to we got to teach them, and in teaching them, set the example as to right living. So uh, going going back to where we left off last week, you know, where we was talking about a lack of concern for others and a lack of justice in our society. That relates to what we're talking about because where there is disrespect for other people, there's not going to be any concern for them and there's not going to be any justice for them. So the first sin he points out here is the matter of disrespect. Now look in verse number 12. The second sin in this list of four is self-righteousness. He says there is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet, is not washed from their filthiness. Now that tells us two things there. It tells us, number one, they are defiled. They're sinful. But number two, it tells us that they are deceived. Notice what he says. They, they are pure in their own eyes. Anything wrong with me, you know. I've got my act together. You might not like what I do, but, you know... Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, and they'll argue with you till the sun goes down, uh, you know, that, that they're right. They just don't see anything wrong with it. You know, that ought to remind all of us of a certain group of people in our Lord's Day called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees is, I think, a perfect picture of this because they were religious, but they were lost. And for them, religion was just a matter of externals. As long as you dot all of the I's and cross all of the T's, as long as, you know, you show up at the temple and you bring the proper sacrifice, as long as you go through all of those outward manifestations of dedication to God, then that means you're all right. So uh, it's all external with them. But beyond that, everything they did and believed was based on tradition rather than the teachings of God's Word. Instead of just saying, well, look, no, this is what the Lord said. This is what we better do. They had all of their traditions. And uh, let, me, let me tell you, those traditions were hammered into the minds of those little kids. And so they got the impression that being right before God is simply a matter of being self-righteous, which in their view was keeping with the traditions of our fathers, you see. And so uh, notice... What he's really saying here, it, the way I, it makes sense to me, is they're content in their corruption. Think about that. I said they were defiled and they're deceived. So they are corrupt, but they're content. Uh, they're not conscious of how sinful they really are. And, you know, that, 
that, by the way, that's to be expected with unsaved people. A lot of times we Christians, you know, we want our nation to be better than what it is. That, that's only natural, or it should be. I mean, that ought to be the desire of our heart. We, want, we know that, you know, righteousness is the lifeblood of a nation, and that, that ought to be important to us. But sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking that, that it's okay to expect unsaved people to live up to Christian standards. And that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. We look around our nation and what in the world has gone wrong? What's gone wrong is we haven't won enough people to Jesus Christ yet. That's what's gone wrong because we can't expect unsaved people to live up to Christian standards. Why? Well, the Bible says because they love darkness rather than light. They love darkness rather than light because what? Their deeds are evil, John said. Jesus actually said that over in John chapter 3. They love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil and they do not understand that what they're doing is wrong, that it is sinful. You say, well, how could anybody be so blind? Well, just like before you became a Christian, you were in the same boat. You might have had different views than they do, but you're in the same boat in this sense, and that is, as Paul said, the God of this world has blinded their minds lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine unto them. You know, we can sit down and take the Bible, leave it, and go from one verse to another, and we can try to teach it and present it and make our arguments for Christian standards on the, on the grounds of logic. You know, we, we can try to be reasonable with unsaved people. Look, you know, even if you're not a Christian, you'd be better off if you live by Christian standards. Why? Well, because... These standards that God gave us are safeguards. And as I've said so many times, when God says don't, what he's really saying is don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt because when we violate these standards, it's, it's going to hurt us. But there are a lot of people, you could, you could go to them just on the basis of reason and logic and try to argue them into following the standards of the Bible. I'm telling you, you're not going to get anywhere doing that. It's not going to work. What they need is the light of the truth because it's the truth that sets us free so here we see these people of which he's speaking they're deceived they're defiled they have no sense of sinfulness at all just like today it's amazing how many people uh, call evil good i'm going to take you right back to the old testament and, and Whenever they did exactly the same thing, they called good evil and evil good. And uh, uh, even though it's forbidden in the Bible, you can take the Bible and show them. And is this what the Bible says? Well, yeah, that's what the Bible says, but I don't believe that. I've had people tell me that. I, I, I mean, I've read it right out of the Bible and saying, is that what the Bible says? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. Well, if that's what the Bible says, wouldn't that be right? Well, that's what the Bible says, but that's not what I believe. And like one fellow that I used to work with, and he was a Catholic, and I kept trying to show him that we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our human effort. We're saved by grace through faith. And so I'd go through the Scriptures, and I'd say, Tom, now, isn't that what the Bible says? Yeah, that's what the Bible says, but it says not what we believe. I said, if what you believe is not what the Bible says, why don't you change what you believe? 
He said, because, he said, you don't understand. It's against our religion to change our religion. <laughs> yeah. How convenient is that, you know? I mean, to, if you're going to trap a bunch of people in some religious system. And so he felt trapped. And by the way, that's all he ever knew. You know, I mean, from the time that he was a little child and uh, he had been raised in Catholic schools, had that doctrine pounded into his mind. He had gone to a, 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 a Catholic university. And so that's, that's all he knew. Uh, well, the, the, the only thing that really enlightens our mind is for us to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we, look, we've got to come to the end of ourself and acknowledge the fact, you know, that we don't know what we need to know, and at some point in time we have to turn to the truth of God's Word and depend upon it for the guidance that we need. And let me tell you, when a person is saved and when a person is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and those are not two different things, by the way, because when you're saved, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart. And whenever that happens, we become aware of our sinfulness. And the closer we live to the Lord, the greater our sensitivity to sin will be. There, you know, there are Christian people that say, well, you know, I, I, you know, preacher, I know that you think this and you think that, but I, I don't see anything wrong with that. And, you know, they're sincere. They, they, they really don't. But it might be it's because they haven't really read the Bible, haven't really studied the Bible. Let me tell you, whenever somebody, when someone gets crossways with the Lord, whenever they get backslidden, cold, and indifferent, and worship just becomes formalism and there's no heart to it or anything, you, you, you know, a, after a while you, you lose that sensitivity towards sin. And some way or another, especially it seems like in the last 50 years among Baptist churches, the, those that have gone the route of modernism have a tendency to label those who want to stand for the truth legalists. Well, you're just a bunch of legalists over there. Well, you know, the problem is, number one, I can tell by making a statement like that, they don't even understand what a legalist is. You're not a legalist just because you stand firm for what the Bible teaches about something. A strict legalist is somebody that thinks that they can be justified in the sight of God. They can become a child of God by keeping the law. That's a strict legalist. But whenever you're talking about, you know, somebody that they know what the Bible teaches and they're firm and they're not going to move, the next time that you're tempted to criticize someone like that because they might have some convictions that you don't have, you know, it just might be that it's because they're closer to God than you are. Really, I'm serious. It just might be that they are closer to God than you are, and that's why you do not see the sinfulness of that activity. I, I could sit here 30 minutes and talk about different uh, illustrations of that fact, and you really wouldn't appreciate some of them. But it's the truth that there are a lot of times somebody says, well, that preacher is just a legalist. He just, he's just too strict. He's too old-fashioned, blah, 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 blah. Well, it just might be that he's studied the Bible enough that he knows the difference between right and wrong. And if you haven't, you don't. 
You see, our level of sensitivity toward the Lord is determined to a great extent by our attitude towards sinfulness. Let me give you an illustration of that. You don't need to turn there unless you want to. Luke chapter number 7 is talking about the woman, the sinful woman. Boy, I mean, everybody, everybody just thought she was horrible and awful and terrible and what have you. And yet here is a, a sinful woman that was forgiven. I want you to listen carefully to what Christ said in verse 47. Uh, if I can read it, he says, uh, Her sin, her sins, plural, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. You see, my love for the Lord to a great degree, I'm, I'm talking about the measure of my love for the Lord now, is determined by my attitude toward my sins. I don't know if I'm making sense or not. You, you know, let me try to illustrate it this way. You take a little little kid, they're, they're six years old, let's say, and uh, you say, well, you think kids six years old can be saved? Some of them. Some of them, you know, they couldn't be saved until they're eight because they don't understand it and they haven't reached that age of accountability. I don't know exactly where that's at and nobody else does. But a child properly instructed and what have you, the age of five or six, well, they most certainly can be saved. But here's the point. Uh, you can't expect that child to have the same emotional expression, that the excitement, the thrill of being saved that some old boy that's been a drunk all of his life that God saved and got him out of the bar rooms. You can't expect that because that child has never experienced the depth of those sins and, 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 and there's no way to compare the two. I, because when you realize, like Paul said, man, I'm the chief of sinners. Think about that. That's what he really believed about himself. So I'm chief of sinners. I, I'm, I'm as bad as they get. I'm the worst. And like I said Sunday, he was the worst enemy Christians had, by the way. So he might have been telling the truth. He's the chief of sinners. And that's why Romans 5, 8 is so wonderful, you know, that God loved us in that while we were yet sinners. And it's our understanding, you know, of our sinfulness. And that's why in, in the book of Romans, when Paul was talking about sin and he spoke about Sin being exceeding sinful. You know, for some people, sin, you know, well, it's just wrong. Other people say, well, no, it's not just wrong. You know, it, it's sinful. But for Paul, it's something that was exceeding sinful. It was horrible. It was terrible. And so we've got to realize the danger of a self-righteous attitude. Because let me tell you, for one thing, for one thing, going back to where we started tonight, when you talk about disrespect for others, that, you know, one of the main causes of us not respecting others is a self-righteous attitude. We think we're better than they are. Well, now that leads to the next verse and the next sin. Verse 13, and the sin here is pride. There is a generation. Oh, some emotion in this. Notice, oh, how lofty are their eyes 
and their eyelids are lifted up. I mean, this is a picture of pride. You, you could say it's an accusation of arrogance. Instead of their eyes being cast down in shame because of their sinfulness, their eyes are lifted up in pride. I, you know, I, I don't think any of us have the ability to to truly read what's going on in a person's life by their eyes, but I think we would all agree by looking at a person's countenance and their eyes, we can tell a lot, of, a lot about them. You can tell whether they're mad or whether they're happy or, you know, whatever. And, uh, and there's several scriptures that indicates that pride has a way of showing itself in the face. And I'll tell you, that's an apt description of the world that we live in today because in spite of our obvious sinfulness and, and all of the warnings that God has given us, you know, we just, well, we strut through life like a proud peacock, you know, just like, you know, we're the greatest thing since sliced bread. And we don't understand that we don't deserve anything. None of us do. The very best among us are totally undeserving uh, and, and can't do anything really to make ourselves deserving because we're not earning our way with God. But again, whenever you think about being self-righteous and you think about pride, automatically what? It goes right back to the fact that you have no respect for the other person. And, and, and well, you talk about a sure sign of trouble, uh, pride is it. The, the, Bible, the Bible says only by pride cometh contention. Uh, the Bible tells us also pride goes before destruction. And so whether you're talking about a family or a church or just a relationship or whatever it is, when we let pride enter into our heart, we know that we're headed for trouble. And that's what he's talking about. A generation, how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. It's a picture of arrogance. Uh, even, in the, even in the religious realm today, we, we see a lot of, a lot of arrogance. And uh, I don't think there's ever been a time where we heard so much about self-love. I mean, people, people literally misapply what Jesus was saying when he talked about, you know, loving others as we love ourselves. He's not commanding us to love ourselves. He's presuming that we do because that's a problem that we tend to have and we're to love others as we would care for ourselves. But our primary responsibility is what? To love God and to love others and and, and it's not this self-esteem and this self-promotion and, and boasting that we see today. And every time, every time I think about that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes to mind. Uh, most all of you are familiar with Nebuchadnezzar and back in the book of Daniel. And, of course, you know, God's using Daniel to convey the truth to Nebuchadnezzar. And, and listen in chapter 4 and verse 30 what Nebuchadnezzar said. He says, is not this great Babylon, I want you to get the picture now, great Babylon, all of the hanging gardens, you know, and uh, oh my, there's not another city like it anywhere on earth, and here's old Nebuchadnezzar strutting his stuff, and he says, is not this great Babylon that I have built 
Notice, for the house of the kingdom, by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty. Well, everything was about him, right? Everything was for him. But boy, I'm telling you, whenever God got through with him, you remember what happened. He 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 become like a, a madman. In fact, he become like the beast of the field. He literally here's the king, mind you, getting down from his throne and living out in the field like a beast and sleeping out there at night and eating the grass like the oxen. God brought him down and listen to what he said in verse 37 of that chapter. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose words are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. He got the message, didn't he? He got the message. Look, we don't have anything to be proud of. About And if we don't deal with our pride, God will. You know, it's a whole lot better if we humble ourselves than it is if God is forced to do so. I read a story some time ago that kind of illustrates, you know, this attitude of pride and had to do with a, a newly elected politician. He was visiting Washington, trying to get acquainted and everything. And it so happened that he was visiting the home of one of the ranking senators and he was trying to, you, you know, uh, interpret all of this bizarre stuff in, in, there in the Capitol. And so they're standing there and they're looking out over the Potomac River and, and uh, this old dead deteriorating log floating by. And the old timer said to the newcomer, he said, this city is like that log out there. And the new politician said, well... How's that? What what are you talking about? So the old senator said this. He said, well, there are probably more than 100,000 grubs, ants, bugs, and critters on that old log as it floats down the river, and I imagine every one of them thinks he's steering it. You know, that's kind of the way it is with man. We get the idea we're running the show, that's the problem with Nebuchadnezzar. He thought he's in charge. He's the king. He can do whatever he wants to do. And what we forget, what we forget is that God's the one that's in control of everything. By Sunday, as I spoke about the matter of divine providence, God does what he wants when he wants. And whether God appoints it or God allows it, God is in control. He Look, he has absolute power. And that would be horrible were it not for the fact that he has infinite wisdom and total perfection. You can trust God. That's what I'm trying to say. You can trust him with all of that power. And he's the one that's running everything. Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 23 says, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. 
For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. You know, that puts everything in its proper perspective right there. Don't, don't brag about, you know, your might or your abilities or your wealth or anything else. You want to brag about something. Brag about the fact that you know and you understand who I am. You know, that, we have a series uh, that we teach in Sunday school uh, every few years, a series I put together entitled Knowing God. And it happens to be one of my favorite because of the fact that it's just it's so full of things that, you know, that we need to understand and the importance of us really knowing God. So many times we're satisfied with just knowing about God. You know, we know about Jesus. We know, you know, he's born of a virgin. We know he lived a virtuous life, died a vicarious death buried in the tomb, rose victoriously, ascended back into heaven, coming back visibly. We know all of those facts. There's a big difference between knowing about somebody and knowing them. And we need to have the kind of relationship with God where we know God. And boy, I'll tell you, whenever we do, there's no room for pride on our part whatsoever. That's why Paul said, God forbid that I should glory, that is, boast, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't have anything else to brag about. Nothing. You think about all of his great accomplishments and what have you. You know, somebody might have said, Paul, I remember that time you preached over at so-and-so. My, what a rip-snorting great message that was. I, th- I think that must have been the best message I ever heard anybody preach in all of my life. Paul, you know, he could have got kind of cocky and proud and thought to himself, yeah, boy, I, I was really on point that day. I really did good. No, there was no pride in Paul because he understood what a sinful human being he was. One more thing, verse 14. Here's the fourth sin that he mentions. And I think it'll be easy for you to see the connection actually between all of these sins and going back to verse number 10 that we talked about where there's unconcern and injustice. Verse 14 says, There is a generation whose teeth are as swords and their jaw teeth as knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. What a horrible picture that is. You know, it's, talk, it's, it's a picture of cruel people. It, it's like they, they are without mercy. They're, they're pictured like a beast that, that, that devour those that are weaker. You know, you think about, think about a wolf, and just as a wolf attacks a defenseless lamb... These people here that he's talking about oppress the poor. They have no compassion whatsoever on the poor. Now, look, the poor, if if you're going to feel sorry for anybody, it ought to be those that are poor, right? I mean, why why would you hurt them? If you just want to mistreat somebody, why don't you go mistreat somebody that's really prospering in life? But to pick on the poor, why would you do that? Well, they do that because that's usually the one's you know, where they can get by with it. They can get by with it. Because especially back in those days, the poor didn't have the means where, whereby to protect themselves. And so here's a picture of people with no compassion. And they don't think anything about destroying others to get what they want. 
How awful it is when we live in a society that human life is so devalued that people, you know, it's, it's one thing to go out here and rob a store, say, okay, I've got your money. You don't know who I am or anything. I'm going to leave. But instead of running the risk of, you know, being identified or something, they just soon kill you. Just look at you. It doesn't bother them a bit. And this, these are the kind of people we're talking about here, a picture of the people that, that are without God. And, and, and mark it down, folks. The manner in which we treat other people is a reflection of our relationship with God. There's no way to get around that. If we don't love others, we don't love God, period. Boy, that, you know, that can really put us in a, in a hard place because a lot of people, you know, they claim they love God with all of their heart and yet they don't care anything about other people. They'll walk right over them to get whatever they want. They don't care who they hurt. And the Bible tells us, you know, they're a liar. The truth is not in them. I didn't call them liar. The Bible does. Because when we really love God, it makes a difference in our attitude toward others. And, uh, and, and you know, that, that, this gets down to the very root of all of our conflicts. You know, we try to figure out what in the world's going on in the world. What's the problem? Why, why all of the hate? Why all of the fussing and the fighting and all of that? It, it all gets back to this. And whenever you put all four of these together, I'll say this and I'm through. You put those four things that I've just talked about here together. You, you have disrespect, self-righteousness, pride, and cruelty. Put those together and this is what you got, a powder keg. It's like a powder keg. And I mean some little spark sets it off and there, there's absolutely no telling what great harm might result as a you know as a result of, of that of that attitude? So many times we wonder you know what happened to to our nation. Well, this pretty well describes you know the direction that we've taken, and there can't be anything but bad come out of it. And but the good news is here's the good news: God's still in control. And just as it had to get bad before it got better for Nebuchadnezzar, God just letting it get bad because the best is yet to come. It's going to all get good someday, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. What a great God we serve. He's got, he's got it all figured out. He's not sitting up there wringing his hands, wondering what his next move is going to be. He's got it all figured out. You can trust a God like that. I, I hope you do. Thank you for being here tonight. Anybody have a comment or anything?